Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. I was on the phone recently with a friend of mine who lives on the East Coast in Virginia Beach. And while we were talking, just sort of processing life and what's going on in the church and in the society as a whole, he was driving through the tunnel. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the East Coast, but the tunnels are like a thing there. I mean, we, I, mean I know you can sort of like go under, I don't know, if it's 94 or 35 here. The, the, the tunnel is like an experience where you are long time in this sort of chute. And in Virginia Beach, the ocean is over the top of you, right? So like you are literally underwater driving your car in the darkness. And then all of a sudden, like there's the light at the end of the tunnel and you come out back to the rest of the world and you've passed under the sea. Um, but, but as he's talking about that, we were reflecting on life and just hoping for what could be true of us societally and even in church in some sense, that, that there is a tunnel as if we've been in and there is a light at the end that we can start to see if we are hopeful we can make our way through out into a new space. And the challenging thing about the tunnel especially if you've been in it for a long time, is that you forget that the rest of the world exists. It is really the trees, and you've forgotten the forest. Like, for example, in Virginia Beach, you may forget that you're right next to like, one of the world's largest Navy base, or a bunch of universities, or a bustling downtown, or some impoverished neighborhoods, and some affluent neighborhoods, like, and a, a whole bunch of things. But what Mark wants to do is to not give us the trees today, I believe we need to study a larger chunk so that we can take in the forest. So we can zoom out, as it were, and capture what the whole city has going on. So that's the reason we're going to sort of take a flyover of chapter two so that we can see clearly the big picture of what's going on. And when you look at chapter two, like we're going to do today, it's pretty clear that Jesus is not having a good Valentine's Day. I mean, like, for Jesus, I don't know if you caught that throughout the story, but there's no love for Jesus today on Valentine's Day in Mark chapter 2. Like, he, and he's unfazed. It's great. Like, he's getting questions. He's getting a lot of, like, rolling of eyes. Like, he's getting some people resisting him. He's unfazed. And he, throughout this chapter, has such a secure identity and a really acute perception of the needs of others that's truly breathtaking. So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at the, the, the questions in this chapter. And I believe Mark, the gospel writer, wants us to consider the questions. And then also, um, he wants to show us the answer, okay? So two, two points today. Here we go. Let's read through this. Questions. Here's verse one of chapter two. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered there, and so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Remember, Jesus is working miracles. He's doing lots of things. But everywhere he goes, he's preaching. He has a message to announce. He has something to say about the kingdom. And he's doing it again. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down on the bed which the paralytic lay and when Jesus saw their faith, I love that. 
when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, that's our word today, questioning, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to a paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and go home. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And so they were all amazed, glorified God, saying we never saw anything like this. So here we are in this first little scene in the the chapter with questions being raised at Jesus, not even audibly, but him perceiving in his own heart what's going on. They, not just questioning, but wanting to confront him, saying this way of speaking is not acceptable for someone who is a mere man. But Jesus, of course, with this answer goes, yeah, I know, right? I know this is not acceptable for a man to speak this way. So let me give you the answer. The answer is that I am not just a mere man. I am the son of man. Jesus sees the need present here, which shockingly isn't first and foremost this man's physical ailment. Jesus sees that there is a deep spiritual need that this man has. And the reality is, if he was to heal the guy, he would be confronted with sin within a matter of hours, days, or weeks, and potentially, even with restored legs, have a life that was unsatisfying. But Jesus, knowing his true need, goes after his his deeper reality, needing forgiveness, and he says, I am the son of man. That's why I speak this way. Son of man, of course, is picking up on the language of the Old Testament of one who is like God who would come. This Messiah promise, this divine figure envisioned by the prophet Daniel. And so Jesus is saying, yes, only God can forgive sins. And guess who's here? God in the flesh, the son of man. Jesus is named for himself. They question him, he meets the need, and he says, this is my name. The son of man. And then he goes on again. He went out beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And he passed by and saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here we are with the scribes and the Pharisees questioning Jesus again, saying, hey, I've got some questions, not just about this forgiveness of sins you're offering people, but I've got some questions about the followers you keep. 
Like, this fellowship that you're hanging out with, why would you, the holy man, be hanging with these so sinful people? Why would your crew be so marked by a lack of virtue? Why would your company be so lewd? And Jesus says, well, hey, I've got an answer for you. Let me tell you why. One, because I am a teacher, right? Jesus is teaching them beside the sea. And what is he doing over mealtimes? Well, one, he's having a good time with them. He's eating and he's drinking and he's instructing them constantly about the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, these people have a need. They need to be shown the way of the kingdom. They've been walking in other ways, in other paths. They have other patterns of life, other kinds of character, and they need a new way shown to them. And I can teach it to them. He sees their need. The need of a sinner is to be instructed in a new way. But even more so, the need of a sinner is, of course, healing from the sickness of sin. And so Jesus says, why would I come to save the righteous? I have a name for you, the great physician. That's who I am. I've come to meet the needs of these people, sick as they are in sin. Sinners have need for a physician. The righteous do not. And the questions keep coming. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, and if he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. They question him about fasting. Jesus, why are your spiritual practices not as righteous as the rest of the Pharisees, and the disciples of John. What is it about you that, that's different when it comes to spiritual disciplines? And Jesus says, listen, here's why. Let me tell you my name. My name, who I am, is the groom. Which, of course, makes us wonder, who is the bride? And if you look back throughout the storyline of Scripture, the bride is always, of course, God's people. All through the Old Testament, this imagery runs through of God like a a husband, good and faithful, and his people like a bride, wayward and wandering. And Jesus comes saying, listen, the husband is here. I am here. Come to bring a new and fresh way of relating to the living God. And, And the bride, of course, can't fast on that day. She's going to rejoice. She's going to celebrate. This isn't a day for fasting. This is a day for feasting because the new wine is here. Wine of a new covenant, of a new relationship, a new way of being and remaining in the presence of God. If you look back, of course, into Isaiah In chapter 62, or pick up in Jeremiah, chapter 31, if you want some extra reading this week in your Bible, you'll see 
the, the, the promise of this groom made and the new covenant that was to come where he would come and he would bring about a new framework for relating to God. One where the law is not some external thing where we perform in things like fasting, but an internal reality of the heart. Jesus is saying that day is here and we must celebrate. For on the very hearts of people, I will write my laws and my ways. And they question him still. Let's read on. On Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields and they made their way. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful, what's not right on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never heard or read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any to eat but the priests, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So we see Jesus is the, is the groom. We see Jesus is the great physician. We see Jesus is the son of man. And here he is as the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the one who is over this day of rest that God had given to his people. They question his faithfulness. Wait a minute. There's a way that we do things around here, Jesus. And you've turned it upside down in how you're treating this day of rest, this holy day, the Sabbath. And Jesus goes, listen, the Sabbath was created because man was made with need. We had need for rest. We had need for a day of week where we stopped from our work. And Jesus Jesus, that's what the day is for. Needs being met, not performance being kept. Not this sort of perfunctory way of you getting an observance of the rules that marks you as a person. Jesus is saying, no, this is a day for you, the people, made in God's image to rest and receive. And Jesus says to them, listen, I know the real needs of the people. They don't have need to perform according to the rules and even the extra rules that you scribes and Pharisees put on top of the rules. They have need for rest. And so do we. Need for rest. And that's why Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew's gospel saying, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He's saying, the one who made the Sabbath is here the one who designed the day of rest, the one who can give true rest is here. I am Lord even of the Sabbath. And then finally, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So they might accuse him. Now they're not even questioning him. They're ready to accuse and confront him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath? Is it right on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them in anger, grieved their hardness of heart. He said to the man, 
stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored and the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus, the Lord of life, saving on the Sabbath, making well that which is broken. He sees their need. He shows them his name, which is great. Jesus got no love in this chapter. No love for the Sunday of Valentine's Day. But he's not phased. He's secure in who he is and he's perceptive of the needs of us and of the people back then. And he rises to meet those needs. The the question that remains, you notice here the last story, they don't even question him. He's turned the tables and questions them. And the question that remains is, why are they asking like this? Why are they asking questions with such venom in their tone? And Mark shows us the answer right in the middle of the chapter. Did you catch it? Look at verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, those, he's called to them and said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees, are the ones asking questions. They think they're the ones confronting Jesus, but Jesus is the one in all of these little stories confronting them in their self-righteousness. Jesus is confronting all the ways in which they have built upon themselves and their doing a sense of being right and superior to others. The message of repentance that he brings is an offense to them. Because like some in our day, they would say, us? Me? I don't need change. They need change. Like, I I don't need repentance. Those people need repentance. So often in our time, we're quick to cast blame, to polarize to one side, to the other, to say they're the problem, but she's the problem, but he's the problem. It is because self-righteousness, which ran deep in the Pharisees, runs deep within us as well. We're just like the Pharisees and the Herodians because the kingdom Jesus brings has come into conflict with our own. Therefore, we can't receive the king. Look at what one scholar says. It says the Pharisees looked for a cataclysmic messianic kingdom to remove the rule of Herod. So Pharisees wanted a complete government overthrow. The Herodians, on the other hand, of course, they were friendly to Herod. They wanted to preserve the Herodian rule. But here you see two groups completely opposed to one another, often at odds in the rest of life, coming together and opposing Jesus because he was introducing a new kingdom that neither wanted. Imagine this. Imagine this. This is the effect of the end of this verse here. Imagine that over the next few years, an independent candidate 
rises to fame and popularity in our country with such widespread approval ratings that everyone is flocking to this candidate in support of them. And that by 2024, what you have is our government system with two parties that have so been at gridlock and opposed to one another and and, and out of sync, completely joined forces to try and impeach before the candidate becomes into office the candidate. That's what's going on here. I mean, you might not like my political language, but before Jesus even steps in to full rule, both of the polarized parties of his day have linked arms together and said, let's destroy him. Jesus was perceived as a political leader. And these two parties wanted nothing to do with his kingdom. Have you reckoned with the offense of the gospel? Jesus came to call sinners, but he came and contended with the righteous. Jesus came to call sinners, but he contended with the righteous. Because those who are well have no need of a physician. Do we know our own sickness and sin such that when Jesus comes as the king with the good news of the kingdom, we can receive him? You see, both religion, both moralism, and progressivism, relativism, are ways of building an identity for yourself to make yourself right apart from the good news of grace that Jesus offers in the gospel to sinners. They are alternate kingdoms to the one that King Jesus brings. There's good news here for hearts that are hard. Hearts that are stony. The good news can take a sick heart and make it well. The good news can make a hard, take a hard heart and make it flesh again. And Mark wants to show us the answer for the hard heart. Because the answer for the hard heart is a king who can raise a lifeless, paralyzed heart to life. The good news for a hard heart is the king who can rescue a wayward and a wandering soul. The good news for a hard heart is the king who can nourish the weary as a Sabbath would, someone who's overworked, who can heal the wounded. But family, the callous heart, Jesus will confront. He came to call sinners. There's hope for us and there's hope for them. And the announcement of the good news is such that we have an offer of grace to come to the table of Jesus. But it means that those of you in the room who know yourself to be a sinner have to take courage to receive the call of Jesus. Do you see the way he welcomes those to his table who have done wrong, who are fallen? who have done things that they think in their head, if I ever got, this ever got let out, I would never be accepted. And he says, come to the table. And he says to those who are righteous to come as well, but to lay aside your righteousness and to come and receive my own. Because Jesus calls sinners and confronts the righteous, we must confess our darkest sins and our dearest sins righteousness. There's a poem, an old hymn, 
that often speaks to my soul. And it reads, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Jesus is inviting us. The great physician stands ready. Your seat at the table with the other sinners is prepared. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. It is full of revelation about your name, who you are, and our need. We pray that um, as we move to a time of response, you would allow all of us, by your grace, pour out your spirit such that all of us here or online might come confessing our darkest sins and our dearest, most comforting forms of self-righteousness such that we might be healed by the great physician and we might walk into your kingdom. We give you praise for being a savior full of compassion and for calling sinners like us. In your name we pray, amen.